Live from the Mert Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app at KBLA 1580. Listen to us live anywhere in the world but only by downloading the app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I'm delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. A good show on tap for you today in our second hour. The hit Asian-led show Beef on Netflix has generated plenty of buzz since its premiere. Say nothing of the historic night for Asian representation at the Academy Awards earlier this year when the film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once won the Oscar for Best Picture with its bevy of Asian cast members. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And in hour two, we'll be joined by Dr. Jennifer Ho, the daughter of a refugee father from China, and an immigrant mother from Jamaica who is now a leading expert in the field of race and ethnicity studies. We will talk about what she calls racial ambiguity and explore the intersections of Asian American and black American culture in our two. In our third hour, two conversations uh, at the top of the hour and in advance of the big game tonight in San Francisco between the Lakers and the Warriors, a conversation with author Teresa Runstetler about her new book, Black Ball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the generation that saved the soul of the NBA. The book is a gripping history and corrective to the negative narratives that have surrounded the league and its black players for decades now. On the B side of our three, a man who has defied great odds with only a 10th grade education and having to overcome a gambling addiction. Shelly Butch Anthony is the owner of the famous This Is It Southern Kitchen and Barbecue Empire, a staple of Southern cuisine and one of Atlanta's emerging restaurant chains now celebrating 40 years of award-winning entrepreneurship. There's a new documentary set to premiere about the Anthony family's inspiring journey to restaurant business success, and we will hear all about it from Shelley Butch Anthony on the backside of our three. But we commence today's program in conversation with our friend and brother Michael Steele, former chair of the Republican National Committee and former lieutenant governor of Maryland, the first African-American to hold either of those positions. He continues his role as political analyst for MSNBC and host of his own podcast, the Michael Steele Podcast. I am pleased to welcome back to this program, Michael Steele. How are you, sir? It's good to be back in the neighborhood, Tavis. How you doing, brother? <laughs> man, if I complained, I'd be an ingrate. You know me. I'm delighted to have you Amen. on. <laughs> delighted to have Amen. you on. Grateful for the hour with you. And I was just laughing walking down the hallway, actually running down the hallway to the studio, running because there's so much breaking news literally right I now. <laughs> As you know, being a big, big an analyst for MSNBC, uh, some days it's feast, some days it's famine, right? And this yep. is one of those weeks where there's been so much breaking news this week, and I couldn't wait to get in the studio 
to talk about these uh, stories with you. Let me start with this. Just out. Four Proud Boys members have found uh, have been found guilty of seditious conspiracy. We've uh, focused so much of our attention uh, lately on Donald Trump's legal issues. Uh, and there's a lot to talk about there, of course. Uh, but I had uh, Barbara McQuaid on, former U.S. attorney, a few days ago to sort of tee uh, this up. Friend, yeah. yeah, I love Barbara. Mm-hmm. Had her on to tee this up, Michael Steele, because we've been focusing so much on Donald Trump. We haven't kept our eyes on this particular case. But this case uh, focuses squarely on what happened January 6th and those proud boys who were behind it. And again, uh, breaking news just now, four of them uh, have been found guilty of seditious conspiracy. They're going back, the grand jury is, to work on the other issues that they have not as yet resolved. But uh, as of this moment, uh, at least four have been found guilty of seditious conspiracy regarding the January 6th insurrection. What, sir, do you make of that development? I think it's a very powerful uh, moment. I mean, this in, in some respects, it was a, a bit risky for the government, uh, Department of Justice, to, to bring uh, the highest level of charges, um, particularly given the role that some of these individuals played uh, in, in planning and executing this conspiracy. But it stuck. And what it says was, to me at least, while everybody sort of focused on the high wire act that's Donald Trump, mm-hmm. uh, the jury did what juries do, and that is it assessed the evidence that was presented in front of it, the, the narratives from both the defense and the prosecution about that er- about that evidence, and have come to a judgment, just as they did uh, with um, uh, the Oath Keepers uh, a few months ago, six convictions there. Um, we're now looking at four convictions here. Um, there is uh, more evidence that they're going over to, to, to adjudicate the remaining uh, charges. But the, the fact that we have reached this point says that the work of the January 6th committee, what we saw as, as average citizens watching this narrative unfold uh, before our eyes on January 6th um, and, and feeling this isn't right, a jury of uh, that represented us uh, found found these individuals guilty, and, and that's a good day. That's a good day. Yeah. Um, what do you think this says? We're talking, of course, about the Proud Boys, and uh, pardon my pun. What about the White Boys? That is to say, the larger group, yeah. the larger group of white conspiracy um, uh, act, uh, activists, if I can use that word, uh, these white conspiracy players all across the country. How do you think they're going to read the fact that four of their brethren, as it were, have been found guilty of suspicious, seditious conspiracy? Well, I think you'll see in some instances, and we've already seen some of the some of that in this case, where um, the one individual who is part of the five total, uh, but who they've not found uh, guilty or not guilty yet, uh, saw what was happening and walked away from it. Didn't mm-hmm. want to be involved with with what he saw unfolding. Was in fact mad with the. Uh, the uh, the Proud Boys uh, doing doing what they were doing or planning to do. Mm-hmm. So you'll have that, I think, to your to your question, sort of a small ripple effect among some of these folks who will say, you know what, I, I really don't want to risk going to jail and messing up my family and all of that. Mm-hmm. But I think in large measure, they double down. They lock and load, to, to use an awful expression, but mm-hmm. that's the mentality um, that these people have been wanting um, uh, a war, if you will. They want to fight uh, against the system as they define it. And they certainly want to purge the country of men and women who look like you and me. 
um, or at least if they if they can't get us out of here, at least take away the rights that we have. Um, and so I think we just need to be prepared as we go into a presidential cycle where Donald Trump, whether Donald Trump is at the top of the ticket or not, he will be a factor. Mm-hmm. His mouth will run. He will make an unpleasant noise. Uh, and, and that will further stoke the animosities that have been brewing out there across the country. And I, I, I try to be very clear about this with people. Yes, it animates itself within my party, within the GOP, but this just ain't about Republicans versus Democrats. This is, this is a, a systemic issue that speaks to the nature of, a, of the American people, uh, how, we, how we view each other, uh, how we value or don't value each other. That, that goes beyond partisanship. And the proof in that is, look, Trump picked up 7 million more votes between 2016 and 2020. Mm. And those weren't all Republicans because there ain't that many Republicans <laughs> in the country. So <laughs> that's, that's, to make up seven, to, to fill 7 million more votes. That's a powerful data point. I hadn't thought about it in that way. That's why I love talking to Michael Steele. He always gives me a different way of seeing the world, as we say all the time. This program at its best uh, is about challenging us to reexamine the assumptions we hold, helping us expand our inventory of ideas and seeing data points points like that one through a different prism. Uh, I'll come uh, back to that, I promise, uh, in a moment. Uh, I also want to come back to this issue of um, uh, his, the issue he raises now of the uh, this being a systemic issue, not a Republican or Democratic issue, but a systemic issue as it relates to the roots of American democracy or this experiment in democracy. We'll come back to that. As I said moments ago, it's it's a it's a feast or famine uh, uh, reality in our business. And today it's 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 feast. All kinds of breaking news. We'll talk also uh, about uh, the latest uh, mass shooting. Uh, this one in Atlanta. You saw the news, I'm sure, over the over the evening uh, last night. Uh, today, I should mention, as I often do, sadly, is uh, the 124th day of the year. We are 124 days in, 192 mass shootings. 124 days into the year. Uh, as of yesterday, 192 mass shootings. We'll talk about that. Uh, and this was a brother yesterday, a black man in Atlanta, who, whose mother uh, is saying he has some severe mental issues, and uh, there's always this connection uh, too often between mental illness and gun violence. We'll talk about that with Michael Steele when we come forward. And there is more news, and it ain't good news, uh, for Clarence Thomas. Now we've learned, uh, in addition to Harlan Crow, this Republican billionaire, uh, paying, uh, buying his mama's house. His mama lives in a house that Harlan Crow paid for, and she don't pay no rent or mortgage. Uh, we knew all about the luxury uh, trips and gifts around the world. Uh, trips around the world, gifts received from this uh, mega billionaire Harlan Crow, and now comes news that Harlan Crow has paid the tuition for Clarence Thomas's son. Uh, it gets worse, and none of this Clarence Thomas has reported on any of his filings. He's been hiding stuff like crazy, and every other day it seems there's a new story about what Clarence Thomas has not told the American people vis-a-vis his financial filings and the influence uh, that uh, one named Harlan Crow may have over Clarence Thomas, given all that he has given to and done for the Supreme Court justice, now the longing service member uh, of the of the court. So we'll talk about that and a great deal more. What a, what a busy day. Michael Stewart is our guest on KBLA Talk 1580. We've got a lot to talk about. Good thing we've got three hours. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Conversations that matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. 1580. 
Michael Stewart is our guest in this hour on Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580, and we're delighted to have you in with us today in this first hour. What a busy news day it is. Back to what we were talking about a moment ago, Michael Steele, um, uh, the four Proud Boy members who have been found guilty of seditious conspiracy uh, as the grand jury goes back to work to uh, to um, uh, figure out the, uh, perhaps other charges, um, other, other verdicts, rather, uh, for these other charges that have been leveled against other Proud Boy members. Um, let me, let me, let me ask, um, do, do you to drill down a little bit more on your comment that this represents a systemic issue, not just a democratic, uh, issue, uh, or Republican right. issue or Republicans versus Democrats. So, uh, unpack that a bit more for me. Tab, so you and I, over, over the years that we've been having both public and private conversations, uh, conclude one thing, uh, the issues that, that, that run through and course through this uh, country like veins mm. is, is race. It's all race-based at the end of the day. And I literally was having this conversation yesterday with a buddy of mine, uh, a white friend of mine, and, and I just told him straight up, I said, look, the reality of it is we're not going to get much right until we resolve black and white. Mm. Until we resolve 400 and, and plus years, 403, 404 years of tension um, between black folks and white folks. It ain't about Hispanics, it ain't about Asians, it ain't about Germans or any other group that's come to this country that's landed on these shores. It starts from 1619 to right now. That relationship is out of whack. It has always been out of whack. White folks don't want to address it. Black folks get frustrated in the process of trying to address it. Um, and then, you know, we get through these lulls where everybody's like, okay, we're kind of kumbaya. And then another black kid is killed by police. Mm. Or we see, uh, you know, continued systemic breakdown in education and home ownership and, edu- and, and uh, health care in black communities across the country. And everyone scratched their head and go, oh, but you've elected a black president. I don't understand what the problem is. <laughs> And and the reality of it is we're not dealing with how white folks look at black people and how black people deal with white folks. And until we really get to that conversation, we're going to see more and more of these tensions uh, arise around issues of race. They just don't go away with good policing reform or with good uh, gun control laws or other uh, efforts in mental health, et cetera, there's something that's more deeply rooted in this relationship and in these problems that we're not addressing. In my humble opinion, that's where we really need to start to unpack this thing. To your earlier point about the things that we've talked about publicly and privately over the years uh, vis-a-vis race, you've heard me say before, as has this audience, that I regard racism as the most intractable issue in this country. And and here's my problem with that. Um, I I have been I have been more hopeful uh, in my life. Uh, I make a distinction all the time between optimism and hope. Uh, optimism suggests uh-huh. there's a particular set of facts, circumstances, or conditions, something you can see, feel, or touch that gives you reason to believe that things are going to get better. That's optimism. That ain't where black folk live. Uh-huh. Hope is a very uh-huh. di- hope is a very different thing. We live on hope. And in fact, we've built. Uh, our lives on this notion of hope, uh, learning how to love America in spite of, not because yep. of. We live lives based on hope. So I've, I've been more hopeful earlier in my life, and the older I get, I'm sad to say, Michael, the less hopeful I get about the point you just made, 
because I keep coming back to King's uh, notion that you cannot legislate morality. You cannot Bingo. legislate morality. And to the extent you can't do that, I don't know how we get from here to there. Does that make sense? I, I, it makes total sense. As the song goes, I can't make you love me. If you don't. Right? Yeah. If you don't. I can't, I, I can't and, make your heart feel something that it won't. But it won't. That's Bonnie Raitt. Bonnie Raitt, y'all. Bonnie Raitt. Bonnie Raitt. Bonnie Raitt. I love her. Yeah. She she nailed it with those lyrics. Yeah. She absolutely nailed it because it applies just not to the relationship between two people. It applies to the relationship between a community of people to its its country. Um, and and that that is, at the heart of it, the challenge we have. Um American black Americans, despite it all, love this country. We have fought and died for this country going all the way back to the beginning. And yet that is not reciprocated, let alone um, by the majority in terms of what that sacrifice of the systemic. And efforts to keep. Yeah, let me uh, let, let Miles pick up the phone right quick and uh, talk to the to the former chairman of the Republican National Committee. His phone is starting to skip on us a little bit, and uh, we don't want to miss uh, every other word of what he has to say. That kind of defeats the purpose. Uh, so we'll uh, get his uh, get his phone line straight. Uh, and uh, while we do that, let me just tell you again uh, the things I want to talk to him about uh, when we come forward. Uh, we'll continue talking, get his final thoughts, of course, on on this issue. And and my my my, my mind said is simply this: I don't know whether uh, to feel better or worse about what is to come. And by that, I mean, as we move toward the presidential election of 2024 that Michael Steele was talking about just a moment ago, um, there, on the one hand, uh, I'm, I'm feeling confident that political violence uh, certainly won't abate, but it may not be as extreme or as egregious as some of us think it will be because Donald Trump has been calling for all kinds of stuff and nobody's really responding to that. I mean, he's, he's clearly leading in the polls. He's clearly at this point the uh, presumptive Republican nominee. Uh, but all of the rallies and outrage and taking to the streets that he's called for uh, as these indictments start to pile up on him has not materialized. In part, I think, because uh, these other white boys see these proud boys uh, in harm's way and being found guilty and going to prison. This is the third time the Department of Justice has succeeded at getting guilty verdicts of these um, players uh, uh, in the January 6th saga. So on the one hand, um, I'm, I'm feeling relatively good about the fact that maybe there won't be the extreme political violence that we expect, uh, assuming that Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee because it hasn't materialized as yet. They're not listening to him again. I think they're concerned that they don't want to get caught up uh, and end up in prison. On the other hand, uh, I'm not sure how to read these uh, these guilty verdicts today because it may very well be the case uh, that this riles up these white supremacists and uh, political extremism, political violence will be on the uptick when we get to uh, the uh, election season of uh, 2024. So I'm not sure I, I know how to feel about that. I think Michael Steele is back. Michael, I was saying a moment ago uh, that I, I, I'm not sure uh, how I feel exactly about um, the political violence that may be forthcoming. On the one hand, Donald Trump has been calling for people to take to the streets in support of him as these indictments roll up on him. And that's not really materialized. They're not listening to him in, in the way that they, they were four years ago. On the other hand, 
Uh, I'm not sure that I'm comfortable with the fact that there may not be a backlash, that we may not see an uptick in political extremism, political violence, because they didn't like the verdicts that these Proud Boys are receiving today. I'm not sure how to read uh, whether or not I'm more more afraid or, or, or a little less afraid of what uh, political violence may be in the offing come uh, 2024. I'll just be honest and straight up about it. Be afraid. Wow. Just be afraid. Wow. Um, because I just don't trust where this otherwise could go. So I have to. I have to be personally cognizant of what's out there, what I hear, the the noise that comes through the channels that I that I'm in, and and the stuff that comes at me personally. Mm. So I just I you know particularly. Um, for for those who have profiled, those who have been speaking truth to power, um, you know, uh, yeah, it, yeah, you need to be smart about going into this upcoming cycle because you don't know how what happened today or what happens to Trump next week will will somehow come into play eight months from now. No, we true. look for the, we look for the response in the immediacy of the moment. These folks don't operate that way. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. They get they get you when they, when you're not not looking, yeah. and that's what you need to be stand for. Right? No nope. point well taken. Point well taken. Uh, I've got two minutes left before news, traffic, and sports will continue on the other side. Let me get this out right quick because uh, I want to follow you, given what you just said. Um, I have always seen you, and this is not brown nosing. Uh, you and I haven't always agreed on every issue, uh, nor should we. Right. We, we don't have to. Um, but I've always seen you as as open, as honest, as transparent. I have seen you as a profile in courage. That's my phrase. Uh, you're a profile in courage because you're willing to say the things that other Republicans will not say. And I, I am very much appreciative of that. Having said that, to your point about the pushback you get, what kind of pushback do you get from being uh, so forthcoming as a Republican on MSNBC, no less? Well, let's just say I don't get a whole lot of dinner invitations. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if I got the invitation, I don't know if I'd eat the food. <laughs> I may mean, just show up and sit at the table. That'll yeah. be enough. No, I, yeah. <laughs> no it's, a, it's a lot of noise, brother. It's a lot of noise. Trust me. I, I am, you know, I am, I am a persona non grata. You saw what they did to. Uh, Kinzinger, Adam Kinzinger is sure. uh, from Illinois, and Liz Cheney from Wyoming, um, because they they stood with the country and they stood for yeah. democracy, and you know effectively drummed them out of office. So yeah, it's it's a tough spot, but you gotta you gotta make that stand, my friend. You do you just because the party is not as more important than the country, yep. and 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 people lose sight of that, and when they do. January 6th happens. Uh, what I don't lose sight of is that Kinzinger and uh, Cheney are white and Michael Steele is black. So take take that for what it's worth. <laughs> and I'll leave that. Yeah. I'll, I'll leave that there. Uh, when we come <laughs> forward after news, traffic and sports, we will talk about uh, this military veteran who is, in fact, black, suspected now in the Atlanta mass shootings, caught after an intense manhunt. We'll tell you, a manhunt, that is. We'll tell you what his mother has to say about his mental issues. We'll talk about that uh, again today, 124 uh, into the year, 192 mass shootings. Do the math yourself. And uh, this news about uh, Clarence Thomas is just getting crazier and crazier. And I, I, I just don't know what it's going to take for the Senate Judiciary Committee to take this more seriously, what it's going to take for Supreme Court Justice John Roberts to take this more seriously. These stories about Clarence Thomas and what he's been hiding keep coming out. And there is nothing being done at the moment to hold Clarence Thomas accountable. I digress for the moment. We'll continue when we come forward with Michael Steele on KBLA Talk 1580. 
You're listening to Tavis Smiley and Michael Steele, the former chair of the Republican National Committee, former Maryland lieutenant governor, the first African-American to hold either of those esteemed positions uh, and continuing his role uh, as political analyst for MSNBC and the host of his own podcast, Michael Steele podcast. Uh, Michael, right quick, what do you make of the fact um, that uh, that uh, in in Maryland, uh, as you were the first uh, African-American to be lieutenant governor, it took a lot of years, but eventually we got to West Moore. Right. Uh, what do you what do you what do you make of black folk in Maryland politics these days? Well, the top uh, political leadership of the state is African-Americans, from Speaker of the House to Governor uh, to, uh, you know, the, the various other uh, committee heads uh, and chairmanships of committees. So it, it has been quite, um, quite a historic moment mm-hmm. uh, at, at the inauguration uh, for West back in January. I had uh, a couple of uh, my Democratic friends coming up to come up to me and go, "Thanks for opening the door." <laughs> and I just, it was just, it was just, it was just a, a powerful uh, yeah. moment for me. Uh, you know, particularly given, uh, you know, Annapolis is where Kunta Kinte was brought to America as a slave. Mm-hmm. And when I was inaugurated, I remember standing on the steps of the Capitol. Um, and even referencing during the speech the fact that Kunta Kinte, just 500 yards behind us, came here in shackles. And today, I'm standing here taking the oath of office as lieutenant governor. And for more, um, again, very historic, symbolic moment uh, for African Americans in our continuing journey and relationship with this country. Yeah. I was thinking, uh, the reason I asked that question, I was thinking uh, during that break about your service as lieutenant governor back in the day and thinking, as you as you well know, that Mississippi does now and has for some time now have the greatest number of African-American elected officials in the state. So statewide, yeah. Mississippi has more black electives than any other state in the country. And yet uh, at the top of the tape, at the top of the ticket, um, African-Americans don't have that much power. Um, they're not governor. They're not lieutenant governor. They're not running agencies in the way they are in Maryland. So I was just thinking, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but maybe I'm right. To my mind, at the moment, Maryland, and maybe even historically, has more African-Americans in power than any state in the history of the Union. I, I think that's a fair assessment, particularly yeah. given given the roles that they're serving. When, when I was lieutenant governor, um, I was um, w- one of two African-Americans elected statewide at the time. The other was lieutenant governor, I believe, of Ohio, was a female. She resigned six months into the job because she wanted to be the commerce uh, secretary, which had more power than the lieutenant governor uh, in that state. Uh, so I was the only serving, you know, national, you know, elected, you know, elected Repub- uh, mm-hmm. black man or woman statewide. Then Barack Obama got elected um, that that September, and was and there was the two of us uh, when he came to Washington, one federal and one state. So you see that the 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 pickings have been very very slim, and even with the advent of other um, you know African Americans uh, to governorships in Massachusetts and, and and places like that, and lieutenant governorships. Um, it's still slow progress, yeah. um, and it is about the power. Yeah. How close would how how close can we get to actual power versus having position? Yeah, and 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 that's you know I tell folks all the time, don't look at the position, <laughs> look at the power that the individual has because that tells you yeah. who's calling shots and making decisions. And yeah. you're right, 
Mississippi is a great example of that. Yep. Uh, and as Frederick Douglass said, we quoted him yesterday, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has yes. and it never will. Um, never will. Yeah, but uh, black folk are running things in Maryland, and I just wanted to kind of underscore that while we had you on in this hour. Um, yeah. Speaking of no, politics. Yeah, speaking of politics, and you mentioned Donald Trump a few moments ago. Let me come back to that. Uh, you probably heard the audience did during the news segment uh, at the bottom of the hour moments ago. There's a hearing going on today. Um, uh, that uh, the judge has uh, is has called and is presiding over, of course, uh, to decide whether or not, at the request of Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, the first brother to be DA in Manhattan, uh, at Alvin Bragg's request, there's a hearing about whether or not uh, Donald Trump will be told to curb his social media post on his platform, Truth Social and Beyond. How do you expect that hearing might go? And I'm wondering whether or not that in any way will raise an argument from Trump. It won't take much to raise an argument from him about his, uh, his first amendment rights being infringed upon. If they tell him he can't post stuff on true social. So, so can I just call BS on all of that? Any, <laughs> any, any, any first amendment argument that's made Tavis is total BS because how many defendants, how many cases have we seen over the, over 50, 60, a hundred years of jurisprudence in this country where a judge will order uh, a defendant not to speak about the case mm-hmm. or tell or tell the jury they can't talk about the case. The judge has absolute control over what happens in his or her courtroom. And if they if they have a defendant or a prosecutor, for that matter, who's going off from the courtroom to a bank of cameras and microphones and running their mouths and and jeopardizing uh, the the efficacy of the process as well as the potential outcome for, for guilt or innocence of the defendant, that judge can shut it down. So if Donald Trump is told not to speak about the case in which he is a defendant, that is not curbing his First Amendment rights. That is a judge doing what all judges do when you have a defendant or prosecutor who goes rogue in the case and runs their mouth. Now, Donald Trump can go on True Social and talk about anything else Donald Trump wants to talk about. That's his First Amendment right, because guess what? That's not the subject of, a lit- of litigation or criminal investigation or hearing. So, you know, let's not get duped in playing. And the media is so daggone irresponsible mm. in drawing these false equivalencies around this stuff instead of very clearly explaining the power of this judge to do what this judge can do in this matter if the judge believes that Donald Trump is violating the decorum of the courtroom and and the process of the trial by tampering ostensibly with jury with the jury by running his mouth because otherwise I mean the jury is is prone to hear this stuff they they've not been sequestered um, and, and so there's a lot there's a lot here that just just ticks me off because it, it it's not consistent with what we've seen happen in other cases and everyone's drawing these crazy analogies you know to the first amendment that in my view just don't apply nope i love your uh your your response about the false equivalencies in the media always you know falling for the uh the, the banana in the tailpipe if i can put it that way oh my god uh, and 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 yet uh your fine retort your detailed retort notwithstanding donald trump is still gonna say <laughs> that <laughs> that they're curbing they're curbing my first amendment rights to free speech if in fact this judge tells him to sit down and shut up on true social we we shall see 
see what happens in the coming hours uh, and, and certainly days. Uh, let me pivot uh, uh, not so gently to this other story I want to get your take on. Before we get to Clarence Thomas, I, I want to wrap our hour with that. Um, but as I said earlier, today is the 124th day of the year. So far, 192 mass shootings. A fifth grader can do the math on that. You got more shootings than you have days in the year, according to the Gun Violence Archive. But this one is a bit different in that it was a black man, a military vet suspected in the Atlanta mass shootings, uh, mass shooting, caught after an intense manhunt. His mother has said he has uh, some severe mental health issues. I I, want to just ask your take, not so much on the gun violence issue, because that seems to go unabated. Happy to hear your thoughts on that if you think there's a way out of this uh, or a way forward. But the connection that we so often see, Michael Steele, between mental illness and gun violence. It is is a a real thing, right? It is is actualized and manifested uh, in so many different ways and more and more. Uh, in recent years uh, through gun violence. These individuals who, um, for whatever reason and circumstances, are are incapacitated mentally uh, in being able to make, uh, you know, proper judgment and and commit proper behavior with respect to gun uh, handling and gun ownership are now finding themselves lashing out and, and taking out whatever inner demons uh, are, are, you know, eating at them on a public at large. It doesn't take much to trigger this. And the fact that we are still so late to the conversation and understanding the connection yeah. between mental health and gun violence is, is a problem. The broader question, though, is we're not going to solve that piece, Tavis, because we don't want to solve the broader piece <laughs> of, of just, you know, who has access to AR-15? Mm-hmm. Why, why, why are 15 and 14-year-olds allowed access? Why are people um, who uh, you know, are noted for domestic violence in some states permitted to, to, to access these weapons? There, there are a whole lot of things that we could be doing that we have not done since the very first shootings, yeah. mass shootings 20 years ago. Um, began us on this very deadly and ugly uh, narrative for the country. The suspect's name is Dion Dwayne Patterson. He is just 24. That's the sad part of this. He's just a young man, 24-year-old African-American Coast Guard veteran, um, waived his right to a first appearance in court earlier this morning, faces one count of murder, four counts of aggravated aggravated assault. Uh, One person, of course, killed, four others wounded. Uh, in this mass shooting in in Atlanta uh, as these persons were waiting in a medical waiting room, in fact. Mm -hmm. Uh, His mother has spoken out and said, I just just feel my heart goes out to his mother, man. Um, His mother has said publicly, um, uh, first of all, she has uh, apologized to the families of those who were slain and hurt and uh, her message to those, uh, the rest of us, I should say, uh, is uh, when we encounter anyone with a mental illness and I quote from her quote don't disregard them close quote I'm trying to advocate for my son just be careful those are the words of his precious mother don't disregard them when you see them dealing with mental illness I'm trying to advocate for my son just be careful uh, your heart certainly goes out to those again who were slain and wounded uh, but you got to feel for his mommy as well uh, knowing that uh, her, her son has issues and um, she's tried to step in and help uh, we are told, and um, she's apologizing publicly to those who have been uh, hurt uh, and maimed in this process uh, uh, at the hands of her son, who's wrestling with all kinds of uh, mental issues, if you if you will. So 
Thoughts and prayers for his mother and certainly for those who were caught in this particular mass shooting in the city of Atlanta. When we come forward, I guess, Michael Steele, uh, we'll talk straight about, straightway about uh, Clarence Thomas and whether or not he will ever be held accountable uh, for the stuff that keeps coming out every day about what he's hiding from the American public. You listen to Michael Steele on Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's get back to Michael Steele on KBLA Talk 1580. So... We've worked our way up uh, in the, on this busy news day to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, we now know that Harlan Crow, this uh, billionaire mega donor to the Republican Party, a conservative uh, uh, mega donor, uh, has done all kind of stuff uh, with and for Clarence Thomas. We know about the luxury gifts. We know about the trips around the world. We know that he bought Clarence Thomas's mama's house. Uh, where she still lives and doesn't pay tuition, doesn't pay rather uh, mortgage or rent. And now we learned um, that he uh, has had Harlan Crow uh, pay the tuition for his son. I said his son earlier um, because Clarence Thomas uh, became the legal guardian for this young man uh, back in 1998 and raised him as his son. He refers to him as his son. It's actually his nephew. But he raises him, raised him as his son from the age of six to the age of 19. Uh, and during that time period, he's now in his 30s. But during that time period, Harlan Crow paid for his education at a private institution. That number could be as high as $150,000. ProPublica, who broke this story weeks ago about all the gifts and trips that Clarence Thomas received, has broken this story as well. And they are still working uh, to put an exact dollar figure on it. Uh, their estimates now as high as $150,000. All the stuff I just told you, the trips, the gifts, his mama's house, his, uh, uh, his nephew, his son, uh, having his education paid for by Harlan Crow, none of this has ever been reported on any of his financial disclosure forms. Uh, and as you well know, we discussed on this program before, that uh, there's a serious call, uh, not serious enough for me as yet, for ethics reform at the Supreme Court, uh, which unlike lower federal courts, does not have a mandatory code of ethics. Imagine that. Your Supreme Court does not have a mandatory code of ethics, and all this stuff seems to keep unraveling about Clarence Thomas, but nobody, not the Judiciary Committee, not uh, John Roberts, nobody as yet is holding Clarence Thomas accountable for stuff he knew he should have reported, lying about it, he knew he should have reported it, has not, but it keeps going on unabated. What say you, Michael Steele? Well, th there's a lot to say here, so I'll, I'll just start with what they say, with uh, what Mr. Crow and the justice says, that they were, they're just friends. Well, they're clearly friends with benefits, mm. right? Because the reality of it is, what what is Crow getting out of this relationship? We know and see what Thomas is getting out of it. And a lot of people are like, well, you know, there are no matters before the court that are of interest to, to Crow. Maybe, maybe not. Everyone thinks there's got to be a direct connection that Crow, if he's in the, you know, let's say if he's in the real estate industry, real estate matters must be the thing. Crow is, is, is a hard-charging conservative guy. So the NRA issues, gun-related issues, abortion issues, there are a whole bunch of issues where, where his influence can come into play. I'm not paying for your mama's house. I'm not putting your kids through school at $150,000 a pop. I'm not sending you on a half-a-million-dollar vacation and just look at you and go, you just my friend. <laughs> 
because you're my friend. And if that is true, Michael, I need friends like Clarence Thomas. If that is true, Thank I you. need friends like Clarence Thomas. I will be your friend. And you know what? As your friend, I will come and I will just, I will cook a meal. Something. I'm gonna give. I'm gonna give up something in this friendship besides just quote being your friend. So it's it's the access to the justice. Yeah. It's the it's the inside uh, peep uh, on the ongoing uh, decisions and deliberations of the court. You're not gonna tell me you're not sitting around one of those outdoor fireplaces in the woods one night with a with a bourbon in your hand and you just talking about you know, what your kid did on the playground that day. <laughs> I remain in moments with Michael Steele when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Continues right now. Right now. I got a little less than two minutes left with Michael Steele. Michael Steele, it seems to me um, that the, uh, the uh, Judiciary Committee has to step up here. Uh, John Roberts, as you know, last week turned down an invitation uh, from that committee uh, to testify before them saying, in, uh, with the support of all the other justices, they all signed off on a document that said, hey, we got this. We don't need no code of ethics. We got this handled over here. Maybe that's because Alito has been accused of leaking docs. Justice uh, John Roberts' wife has made over $10 million in referral fees from law firms. This is the stuff that makes people move from skepticism to cynicism, Michael. Absolutely. And that's why the Supreme Court has gone from an institution that, that held 65% plus approval among the American people to now down in the low 30s. Uh, look, when you, when you cannot be honest uh, in your private affairs, people will not trust you to be honest in your public affairs. And, and that is, for a judge, that's no. Um, and so if you're going to be shady about these relationships and, and do the, po the politician slide, the political slide, of, mm -hmm. well, you know, I, the rules don't exactly say I can't, and we don't have the same, you know, ethical uh, limitations as, well, guess what? When you're explaining like that, yeah. you're losing the confidence of the people, and you are you are giving us a reason to impose those ethical yeah. standards on you i think uh, i think chief justice john roberts making a huge mistake here to, to to sweep this under the rug uh and along with all the other justices uh suggesting once again that they don't they don't need uh, any oversight we got this handled we don't need a code of ethics i think this is going to be a huge mistake um that will put an even uglier as, stain on the court yeah as they say Tavis, everybody needs oversight that's it everybody <laughs> Everybody, Everybody needs it. Uh, 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 Michael Steele, uh, we thank you for your time. We'll do it again, my friend. All the best to you. You got it, man. Take care. Stay strong. Hour two of Tavis Smiley. After news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.